We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right During the war, especially in the first four years from 1939 to 1941, Germany took many prisoners of war. A continuing stream of prisoners of war were always falling from the skies over occupied Europe, British and American airmen, Australians and other nationalities too. The majority of the prisoners were housed in Germany's eastern territories, mainly Poland or eastern Germany. In late 1944-45, the war was rushing towards its climactic end. British historian Richard J. Evans believed that Hitler, since he could no longer win, wanted a Wagnerian end for himself, one that was fit for the gods of the Vikings. In the last days, leaving Berlin was unthinkable for him. The Nazi capital, Berlin, that had always rejected Hitler and the Nazis in all of the elections, would be finally immolated with Hitler in his glorious ending. How ironic. At this stage of the war, the Allied prisoners of war had two things to fear. Being butchered by their defeated German guards or falling into the hands of the approaching Russians and being sent to join the millions of other slaves, including many Russians, in the gulags. This program is mostly the story of the elite American flyers at Stalag Luft 1 and the incredible story of how they managed to escape from both perils. And to finish off, a final shocking story of betrayal by Roosevelt and Churchill to Stalin after the war had ended, one that they had agreed to at Yalta. Now Mick Jagger tells us you can't always get what you want, and in my long life I've learnt that that's true. With the war winding up in Europe, the Americans wanted the best of their pilots and air crews back. The Germans had them imprisoned at Stalag Luft 1. In December 1944, this camp became known as Zemke's Stalag. The Germans had been trying to get Hubert Hub Zemke for two years, and as fate would have it, on his last scheduled mission, he lost a wing in a thunderstorm and had to bail out over Germany. He was the most senior officer in the Stalag and so became the officer in command of 7,000 American and British and probably some Australians in this prison camp located at Bath on the Baltic. Other top American fighter aces were there. Perhaps the closest to a living legend was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Ross Greening. He'd been a flight leader on General Jimmy Doolittle's raid on Tokyo on 18 April 1942. Greening had survived the raid and he'd been transferred to the European Theatre of Operations. The prison camp had its own secret newspaper called Pow Wow, get it? P-O-W, Pow Wow, which was edited by Lowell Bennett. It would take a separate program to cover his exploits, fighting the Russians with the Finns in their 1939 Winter War, then joining the French Foreign Legion, captured in North Africa by the Germans and escaped. In December 1943, he and two other correspondents were shot down on a raid over Germany. Correspondents were rarely embedded in frontline operations, but they were on this one occasion to give them a frontline view of the war from B-17s. Of the four journalists that went on that mission, each in a different aircraft, all but one were shot down and captured. 
lucky one who wasn't was the legendary journalist and broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. The Germans didn't capture Lowell Bennett straight away, of course. His newspaper got a dispatch from him. They were told that he was writing a book on the run about his experiences in occupied Germany. What a man! Things started to get really hairy in the Stalag on 28 April 1945, when word spread that the Russians were only 40 kilometres away. Zemke, whose family had been German immigrants to America, spoke German. The camp commandant, Oberst von Warnstadt, called Zemke to his office and told him that he had orders to evacuate the camp. The Americans were to be marched to a new prison 240 kilometres away near Hamburg. These forced marches with terrified and edgy guards often proved to be death marches. Zemke told the commandant that his men refused to leave and if the Germans tried to force them, they would be overpowered by a special unit of secretly trained commandos in the camp. He said that the camp should be handed over to the Americans and the Germans should get away to safety before the Russians arrived. The commandant agreed and left that day with all of the German prison guards. When dawn rose the next morning, the guard towers in the camp were manned by Americans and Old Glory flew in all of its splendour. Zemke imposed a discipline over the camp as tight as what the Germans had. The men were told that if they attempted to leave, they would be court-martialed after the war. Zemke then sent some of his men out to make contact with the approaching Russians. They succeeded, and Zemke then met with the local Russian commander. He said he wanted to organise American B-17 bombers to come in to evacuate the men. That was when he was told, It would not be possible. In the treaty signed by Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin at Yalta, it was illegal for American and British planes to fly over Russian territory. This was true. On the trip out to meet the Russians and on the trip back, the Red Army soldiers that Zemke passed were drunk, were travelling with wagons loaded down with booty stolen from the Germans, and women were piled on as part of the luggage. Some of the Americans weren't willing to wait while Zemke sorted things out, if he could. They broke out. They went and joined the Russians. What ultimately happened to them, I don't know. Zemke's men found that escaped slave labourers had set the town of Bath on fire, They also found the bodies of two dozen German women strangled or shot near their camp. Every morning after that, terrified women and children from Bath came out to the American camp and begged to be let in. Some young women offered sex in exchange for safety inside the camp. When the German civilians were refused entry, they slept in the fields near the camp, some near the watchtowers for what they hoped would be added safety. Drunk Russian soldiers turned up and insisted on being allowed into the camp, It was impossible and insane to refuse them unless you wanted to be killed. One of the Americans, Alan Newcomb, who had recently graduated from the Wesleyan University, become a pilot and then was shot down and captured, wrote that he felt that he was about to go crazy. Near the camp, he wrote, hundreds of Germans had either been murdered by the Russians or had committed suicide. He recorded in his diary, three women shot themselves about a hundred yards from my barracks and we sent out a detail to bury them. The mayor of Bath killed himself, and rape cases from 6 to 60 are brought to our doctors by the Jerrys. Desperate German fathers offered Americans to come into their homes and have sex with their daughters to spare them from the Russians. One American airman saw a dozen or more Russians lined up outside a cottage waiting for their turn to rape the poor German girl inside. Bombardier Oscar G. Richard III said... 
I believe that Colonel Zemke was the main reason we eventually got out of Bath without losing many men. A small concentration camp was found by the Americans near their Luftstellag. The German guards had left some of the prisoners there alive. They were expected to starve to death. Walking away from this camp, one of the Americans, Gabby Gabreski, noticed something strange. Bodies were hanging from the fences at the far end of the main compound. He went to investigate. In a final act of chilling barbarity, the fleeing SS had locked the gates and, unknown to the prisoners, charged up the electric fence. Dead victims, their eyes frozen open in looks of astonishment, were clasping to the wire. Gabriski said, This validated the war for me as no propaganda campaign ever could have. Some 300 Americans in despair escaped from the main camp and headed for American lines. They travelled on German bicycles and horses, in stolen cars and carriages. Journalist Lowell Bennett and three of his friends joined the exodus. They confiscated a tiny two-cylinder car from the camp motor pool, loaded it with Red Cross parcels and glued a paper to the windshield that said in Russian, Press! Pass freely! It was 640 kilometres from there to the American lines. Lowell Bennett recalled the horror that he saw in the madhouse that Germany had become as the war reached its terrible climax. He wrote, Completely indescribable chaos existed everywhere. I had seen the remains of an army's defeat in France in 1940, but this was a thousand times worse. Mile after mile of burned-out tanks, planes and artillery pieces and roadside ditches piled high with the bloated corpses of Wehrmacht soldiers. Standing forlorn by the road were parentless children with their names pinned to their sweaters. This was liberated, lawless Germany. Could it ever be put back together again, I wondered. Zemke's men listened to the radio broadcast on 8 May, saying that the war in Europe was over. Then on 12 May, Zemke learned that the British and American prisoners would be airlifted out of the camp that afternoon. On one condition. The Americans were holding a prisoner who the Russians wanted very badly. The man Stalin so keenly wanted was Red Army General Andrei Andreevich Vlasov. He was captured by the Germans in July 1942. He became a keen advocate of arming any Russian prisoners of war who were willing to fight alongside the Germans to overthrow Stalin and the communist regime. His efforts along these lines were widely promoted by German propaganda to the Russians. But in reality, Hitler didn't want to take this course. He didn't trust the Russian prisoners. The best he finally allowed was for Russian battalions to fight at Normandy facing the D-Day invasion. All things considered, those Russians fought quite well. Stalin, as you might have worked out by now, was not a forgive-and-forget sort of guy. Stalin would only allow the air evacuation of the British and American prisoners of the Germans at Stalag Luft I if the Americans returned Vlasov, who they had captured in Czechoslovakia. As you'll learn shortly, the Americans had no problem doing that. At 2.30pm, a roar went up from the camp as the first B-17 bombers appeared overhead, it was no coincidence that that was the exact time that General Vlasov was being handed over to the Russians. Zemke ordered that the British were to be the first evacuated. They'd been in the camp longer than anyone else. The British were evacuated that first day, the Americans the next. The planes came in and landed every minute. Their engines were kept running. About 20 to 30 men were loaded onto each plane. 
No one had parachutes. No one cared. Heading toward Le Havre, the bombers descended to 150 metres to give the prisoners a close-up view of some of the cities they had wrecked. One of them, Oscar Richard, remembered the words he had spoken to the man next to him on the flight. I grabbed a spot near one of the waste windows so I could see Germany once more from the air. That could be us. That could be America. Nobody said we had to win this war. Everyone had had enough of the war. Some of the Americans left before the locals, who had grown to know them and like them, even had a chance to say goodbye. Nine-year-old Frank Patton lived near the airfield at I, home of the 490th Bomb Group. His mother did the men's laundry, and he ferried it back and forth to them on his bicycle. They rewarded him with candy bars and coffee, and soon he was bringing them baskets of fresh farmer's eggs. The ground crews got to like him and let him hang out in their tents by the hard stands. They taught him how to smoke cigars and to swear with proper vehemence. On a drizzly day in August, after the fighting had stopped, Frank Patton cycled to the base and found the gates unguarded. The huts were empty and the planes were gone. It was the saddest day of my life, he said 50 years later. The worst betrayal was yet to come from the Yalta Agreement that Roosevelt and Churchill had done with Stalin. One of the deals done at Yalta was the agreement of the British and the Americans to turn over to Stalin's regime any Russians who had fought for the Germans. Molotov told Anthony Eden, England's foreign minister, that some Soviet citizens might not wish to come back because they had been helping the Germans. While Churchill did not wish to go on the record about this arrangement, he agreed privately that, in view of Britain's desire to repatriate its own captured soldiers imprisoned by the Germans in Eastern Europe, he would strive to meet the demand of the Soviet government. Stalin was pleased when the British Foreign Minister, Anthony Eden, handed over the signed paper to that effect. Some of these soldiers were Cossacks. The Cossacks had been under the command of a charismatic German officer, General Helmut von Panwitz. He had surrendered his command to the British on 11 May 1945. The Cossacks expected to remain in the custody of the British. One of the consequences of the deal Roosevelt and Churchill did was that these 30,000 Cossacks who had fought for the Germans and their wives, daughters, sons and children were handed over by the British to the Russians in May 1945. Staggeringly included in these people were Cossacks who had fled Russia at the end of the Russian Revolution in 1919 and were not and never had been citizens of Stalin's Russia. They should not have been handed over to the Russians, but they were. Many of the Cossacks and their families, on learning of their fate, committed suicide. The British used extreme brutality, rifle butts, baseball bats, in forcing these Cossacks and their families onto trains to be sent to Russia. It took four days to forcibly load the Cossacks onto the trains for evacuation. Although he was clearly not covered by the agreement to send these Cossacks back to Stalin, General von Panwitz insisted on staying with the people he had commanded and been responsible for. He said, I was with the Cossacks in good times, and I will stay with them in bad times. Many of the Cossacks were executed when they got back to Russia. Those who weren't executed were sent to the communist concentration camps, the Gulags. General Helmut von Paunwitz himself was executed in Moscow on 16 January 1947. He is known to the Cossacks as the last knight in Europe. 
Now the war was over and Britain and America had made Russia into a superpower. Now they would have to face their new enemy, even more powerful and more evil than Hitler. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIAE.